telltale illness can be just someone who has trouble getting along in the day-to-day -day world, or it can be someone who can't function at all, or it can be someone who can usually function. I would say it's something that you can't really control, kind of at sometimes can take over your thoughts or what you're doing or your actions. No, I mean, I think it's a combination of psychological, chemical, biological, genetic, spiritual. I think it's just a mishmash of all these different things that uh, come together to create our own demons, if you will. I think Again, all of us to some degree go through bad periods in our lives. And sometimes we come through them on our own, sometimes we need help, whether that's counseling or drugs or a combination, legal drugs. I mean, yeah, I think depression's a big thing in my family. But um, I, I don't know who, who doesn't get depressed. I had a roommate in college that struggled with anxiety and like not sleeping at all. And that was tough just because, again, it's like, what can I do? Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us right now from one of the venues here at uh, Long Point Chapel Warehouse or uh, one of the off-site campuses or online. We're glad that you guys are along today. Great day. Would you agree? It's a beautiful day in paradise. I, tell you, I hope you have good plans. Thanks for coming to church. What a good choice. And uh, Excited about that. And listen, um, this week has been pretty incredible for a lot of our staff. As, as a lot of you know, uh, one of our values is to plant churches. We believe that every community needs a life-giving church. Would you agree with that? And so we uh, had a conference this week of all of our church planters and pastors and staff, and we did it in Birmingham, Alabama. And we had over 4,000 people there. And it was incredible to watch what was going on. Uh, ARC International, Association of Related Churches. You guys started all of this. And a portion of every dollar that you give goes toward planting life-giving churches. And uh, there are 10 churches planted this year in China, in large cities, major cities, and uh, just all, all over the world. I'm excited about that. have some friends. Uh, we've had uh, several friends that have uh, come by for the weekend. And one of them is in our service now, Jerry and Tammy McKinney. Will you wave at us? Just wave just a little bit. There you go. They're pastors in uh, City Church in San Diego and a part of ARC, and uh, we're just happy to have you guys. Welcome, welcome, uh, welcome here. Um, speaking of guests, we have a, a guest speaker today. Let me explain that just a little bit. Uh, we're doing a conference here in just a few weeks called The Struggle is Real. You saw it a little bit on the, on the announcement reel. And... Um, uh, we believe that the church needs to have a larger kind of message for uh, mental health. Um, Seacoast is the perfect place. This is going to be one of the first ones ever done in, in church. Seacoast is the perfect place because you've got to be a little crazy to go here. And uh, I know I am. Struggle with all the issues we're going to be talking about. And uh, uh, I, I went to a conference or I spoke at a conference this past summer in Nashville that was the National Association or the American Association of Christian Counselors. And uh, I, I oftentimes speak at conferences. I'm speaking at one this week. And uh, you never know whether there'll be a few hundred people there or a few thousand. This one had 7,000 people uh, dealing with mental health issues. And um, the head of the, the association or the American Association of Christian Counselors is Tim Clinton. 
and uh, there are 50,000 um, members, and they decided we need to marry this with the local church. We haven't had one of these conferences in the local church, and so in about a month, we're going to have one right here where uh, they're going to be uh, world-class speakers on just about every topic that you can imagine, depression, discouragement, uh, just all of the things that deal with, uh, with mental health. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, uh, just to, to attend, uh, there's a kiosk probably in the foyer here, I'm not sure. You, I, in, in every campus, I believe that we got these, and you can just refer to that, go online. We'd love to have you as a part. It's $99 if you're a Seacoast member, a whole lot more if you aren't, so everybody ought to go to Seacoast. Would you agree with that? And uh, let me just introduce our guest today. Uh, his, as I mentioned, he's the president of the Association of Christian Counselors, 50,000 uh, people who are part of that. He is a professor of counseling and pastoral care and executive director of the Center for Counseling and Family Studies at Liberty University. He also is licensed in Virginia as a professional counselor, marriage and family therapist. He now spends the majority of his time working with Christian leaders and professional athletes. I am both. And... Uh, <laughs> In my mind, uh, he's recognized uh, really as, as probably the foremost in the Christian area on this subject and uh, written a bunch of good books. And uh, we asked him to come and share in our series. Our series is My Friend Wants to Know, and we asked you guys to, to ask questions. And a lot of questions came in in this discouragement, depression, suicide, mental uh, health and mental illness area, and I thought, who not better to bring than than Tim Clinton, and he's gonna, he's gonna take us on a journey today of how you get kind of in a hole and how you get out. How many of you are excited about getting out? Yeah, nobody. Okay, good. You just <laughs> stay in your hole. That's all right. You can do whatever you want to do. But here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to give a great big Seacoast welcome to Tim Clinton as he comes. Well, good morning, Seacoast. It's great to be with you. I bring uh, greetings on behalf of the American Association of Christian Counselors. We're honored to partner with uh, your church community and look forward to May and the good things God's going to do here. Mac Powell uh, from Third Day came to one of our world conferences in Nashville, and Mac said, Tim, honest, we were depressed thinking about coming and playing for some counselors, but we did a concert. And Mac lit that place up. The Opryland was rocking. Our people know how to worship the Lord, too. And he said, I love AACC. You guys, um, when we come in May, um, if God uh, has, if you in any way touch the life of another human being, and oftentimes um, that may be over a cup of coffee. I have five sisters who do a lot more counseling than I do, and it matters. Our goal, our mission through AACC and what we're doing in the Struggle is Real Conference is to empower um, each and every one of us to do soul care ministry. And uh, I believe when God's people are conduit through which he channels his message of hope and love, great things happen. So we're on a journey. Uh, we'll ask you to pray for and with us uh, for a great conference coming up. Today I want to turn your attention to um, 2 Corinthians 11. And uh, if you have your Bible turning there, we're going we're gonna to go over this in just a moment. Um, I'm going to share with you uh, a little bit about how good people, how good people can go from a place of fresh faith, a 
place of joy and power in their life to a place of brokenness where they feel lost, confused, angry towards God, and most importantly, how to recover your heart. You ever seen someone go from a place of fresh faith to a place of filled with anger and rage toward life in God, you all? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 11. Paul, uh, in verse 1 and 2, says this before we get to verse 3. I wish you'd bear with me a little in my foolishness and bear with me because I feel a divine jealousy for you as I've betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. Who's Paul writing to, you all, right there, just for a moment? He's writing to believers. He's writing to people he led to Jesus. These are his sons and daughters in the faith. It's his community for a moment. Now verse 3, Paul writes these words, and this is where I want us to uh, sort of hunker down and take a good hard look at what Paul's trying to say. But he says in verse 3, but I am afraid. Beth Moore uh, once told me, we were having a conversation about this passage, and she said, Tim, it's probably better, or she said, I like this interpretation better, but I'm terrified. I'm terrified for you. As the serpent deceived Eve, the evil one deceived Eve by his cunning or craftiness, that you too, your thoughts would be led astray that you'd lose that fresh faith, that confidence you had in God, that sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Father, I pray uh, today as we, Lord, look at um, you and our lives. Uh, I pray that you would um, reveal yourself to us, Lord. Pray that you remove any barrier again here that would prevent your word from going forth. Thank you for this community. God, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a moment in life where uh, you kind of like walked into a room and something was different, like, kind of like a brain freeze moment? You ever had one of those moments where it's just like surreal? Uh, you know there's something going on in the room or there's something that's there, but you haven't figured it out yet. I had one of those moments where I was going to a business meeting, and as I was walking into uh, this restaurant, I had to go through a bar area to get to the restaurant in the back where the guys were waiting. And as I'm walking through the bar area, uh, it was like the bells go off. Ding, 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 ding. And I'm like kind of staggering for a moment, like what? And I noticed, I looked over to the bar, and behind the bar was a guy who had uh, one of those long... Um, ZZ Top, Duck Dynasty beards, you all, okay? They're stylish right now. Everybody's got a ZZ Top beard. And I chuckled uh, for a moment and took a few more steps and was like, nope, that's not it. It was like, ding, ding, ding. That's not it, Tim. Look again. And I turned and looked again over to the man behind the bar uh, with the beard. It was like, look into his eyes. And I looked into his eyes for a moment and realized it was a, a, a man I knew. Um, he was a man that God had used in my life years earlier. As a matter of fact, in one of the most difficult spots in my life, his phone number was the number I dialed. And he answered. And he helped me through a, doc, a really dark time. 
And so it was like, for a moment, confusing for me. And I, is that really him? And so I turned and made my way over to the bar. As I get over to the bar, we're beginning to realize, yes, it really is him and it's really me. And we're talking to each other without saying anything. You ever have one of those moments? Is it awkward? This one was. And as I get closer to him, um, we begin to have small conversation. And we got to that moment where it was like, so what are you doing here? What's going on? You know what he did? He leans over the, over the bar, beard and all, seriously gets into my face, and he says, I'm getting my stuff together. That's what I'm doing, except he cussed in my face. And I'm like, and then he clenches his fist like this and was like, you don't have enough time, son, to understand. We tried to talk and um, kind of came to a close, and I began to walk away to uh, my meeting. And as I'm walking away, I remember asking the question, God, what, what happened to him? I wonder what was going, I wonder what happened in his life that took him to this place. What, what led to all this? And then I'm going to a place where I'm going to go down the steps, and it was like, Lord, does he, there's, there's the real question, is he going to, does he come back around? God, will he come back around? That's what I want to talk to you all about today. I want to take you on a journey. And I want you for just for a moment to hear Paul saying these words. I'm afraid. No, I'm terrified for you. Just for a moment. Life's tough, you all. Let me give you a guilt-free drop. All of us are going to go through moments of difficulty, icy spots, times when life gets confusing, times when maybe our relationship with God doesn't make much sense. You wonder where he's at. Or you're, you're, you're saying, Lord, we're, we're overwhelmed. I don't, I don't get this. And what I've learned is there's a downward spiral that people begin to get caught up in that can become overwhelming. Good people can go on a spin. I want to take you on that journey and then talk to you about how you recover your heart, okay? You guys ready to go? Let's get started. The very first, and this is the teacher side of me coming out, I want to go with a, a series of A's. I want to start out, just draw a circle in your mind's eye. Just put a circle, or if you've got a piece of paper in front of you, just put your, yourself a stick person right inside that. And I want you to start thinking about your life just from, I often do this in counseling couples, Talk to me about your marital story, but I want you to start thinking about maybe someone around you or even your own personal life. What makes our life or our walk in Christ difficult? What can people sort of bump into or what can come their way that begins to assault them where they feel attacked? You know anybody who's going through hard time or deep waters right now? Anybody? You know anybody? I had a guy tell me uh, recently that uh, his biggest challenge was money in his business, and he's just terrified. Um, if the stats hold true, you all, and I just want you to start thinking about people. People look pretty normal, everyday people, until you understand them under stress or duress. And the real substance, the real DNA of who they are begins to surge. Did you know that 40% of America's kids will wake up now in a home where their biological father doesn't live at some point in their life? 40%. Catch this. Of those kids who 
um, don't have a dad at home, nearly 50% of them will not have seen their dad in the last 12 months. We love baseball. We've been having conversations about baseball. My son, Zach, plays baseball for Liberty. He's a pitcher. He started when he was five. And I kid you not, I've seen a lot of baseball, and I've watched a lot of kids and coached a lot of kids. You can tell the boys on the field who don't have a dad. It stands out. And Tim, why is that significant? Well, it's because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Have you ever seen the anger pour out of a boy who doesn't have a father, you all? I have. I see it every day. I see it in big boys. I see it in pastoral leaders and more where they struggle. Go deeper. If the stats hold true uh, when it comes to relationships, just for a moment, uh, somewhere between 40 and 50% of today's marriages are going to wind up in divorce. Did you know that? I know it's debated, but that's generally accepted or understood. That would split this room right in half. But let's go a little deeper. John Gottman is a research or marital research expert at the University of Washington in Seattle. He found that if you count people who separate but don't divorce but never come back to the marriage, it's going as high as 66 or 67%. So it'd probably slice off about right in this area here, this way, and not going to make it in their marriage. Now, I teach a relationships course at Liberty. Undergrad students all have to go through this uh, particular class. One of the things we teach is in Genesis 2 where God said it's not good that man be what? alone. I will make it help me fit for him. And so he gives to Adam Eve. And Genesis 2.24 says, therefore shall a man leave both father and mother, cleave unto his wife. They two twain shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were unashamed. In other words, that's somebody who loves me. And it teaches principle. There's nothing more beautiful in all the world than to be in a relationship with someone who's supposed to love you and they actually what? Love you. But we also teach this. There's nothing more painful in all the world than to be in a relationship with someone who's supposed to love you, and they don't love you. read an article this week about men growing up with mothers who don't love their sons and what it does to a man's heart. It's fascinating. It's not fun to be on the receiving end of that kind of brokenness, is it? How many of you know a loveless marriage? And you're thinking, I just wish he would love me. I wish he would just get it. If the stats hold true, if this were all women in here, statistically they say about one in three women will have been sexually abused by someone she's supposed to be able to love or trust by age 18. Don't tell me that doesn't affect or infect how she does relationships later on. It does with the person she's supposed to spend the rest of her life with, and even with God. It's hard to understand a loving father when you've been hurt by someone who's supposed to love you. We could go on, you all. The result of all this is a lot of depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and I know there are a lot of reasons for all these dynamics, but before long, you're getting overwhelmed. Anybody know anybody going through some hard times for whatever reason? Let's go on a journey. Watch what begins to happen when you're attacked or assaulted in life. And by the way, Job 5.7, Job 14.1 simply says it this way. Man who is born of woman is but a few days and full of what? Trouble. 
The troubles are going to come. Trouble is not your problem. It's what you do in the midst of it that will determine your future. So when you're overwhelmed or attacked, guess what can happen? You can begin to spin, okay? Watch this downward spiral. It'll lead to what we call as a double-A response. You're going to get angry and or anxious. Um, it's kind of like in psychology, the fight-or-flight response. When life's not the way it's supposed to be, when somebody... Um, hurts you when uh, you're confused or things aren't going the way. It's easy to get angry. Some of you were fighting on the way to church today, right? Now you're fighting about where you're going to go eat. I know these things because I have a family. You guys, um, but when you've been violated or hurt, think about anger just for a moment. I believe anger is a God-given emotion. Anger is a state, best understood as a state of preparation. We, when we feel violated or threatened or hurt in some way, we're going to get angry. Anger prepares us to respond. Our body responds. Somebody, when they get, you ever seen someone when they get angry? You ever seen somebody, that big vein pops down in the middle of their forehead? Maybe their nostrils flare a little bit. When people get angry, they clench their fists, don't they? Think about it. When you get angry, you get tense, don't you? Think of it this way. It's a state of preparation. Now, notice what Ephesians 4.26 says. Be angry, but what? But don't sin. What I do in my anger determines whether or not I sin. It's easy to get angry. Do you know anyone who's angry, you all? You know anybody who's angry because life's not the way it's supposed to be? I do. Let me do the end or anxious for a moment. It's the fight or flight response. The fear side is that I'm afraid. Tim, we, we can't take anymore as, as a family. I can't take anymore. God, you, you've taken or I've lost. I was talking to a police officer one day, and he, he was in my office, and nobody could figure out what was going on with him. Finally, we just cut to the chase. 40-year-old police officer sitting across from me, and um, I said, what's really going on? You know what he said to me? I lost my dad. And I turned for a moment because I realized something deep inside of him had broken at that moment. He said, Tim, my dad was my best friend. I don't have anybody. It had so rocked him to the core, it confused him about what he was going to do in his future. He just needed someone to help settle him down for a moment through this. The fear piece. <laughs> I know Paul writes in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication. It's hard to go there, though. It's hard to believe God's for you when the wheels are coming off in every direction and you're crying out saying, God, somebody's got to stop all this stuff. Please. I work with a lot of athletes. They get terrified when they can't perform. It's like they're afraid to have the ball hit to them, or they're afraid to walk into the plate, up to the plate, because and, and that moment, the fear overwhelms them. It makes them play small. It pulls their hands into their face. They're, they can't get the bat through the zone. Or if they're driving a NASCAR, they're just, they're just they're, they're, they're gripping the wheel, and it just changes everything. Everything changes. You know anybody who's afraid, you all? I do. 
If you can't resolve your plane or your plight at this particular level, the spiral continues downward. It'll lead to a third phase, and that's that phase of aloneness. What we tend to do when we're getting overwhelmed by life, we're getting beat up by life, is we tend to disengage. I think it's a reasonable response to an unreasonable situation. When you're overwhelmed and you can't resolve things, you want to what? You want to back off for a moment. I need, I need room. Hey, give me a break. Somebody cut me some slack. I, you know what? I'm sick of doing everything. I've got to get control. It's interesting. At that particular piece, and I don't mind people getting space. I need room. I need to gather myself. But this goes deeper. This is where you begin to cut off all that sort of life-giving power in your life, those life-giving relationships and more to get control. What's scary is there's a process that goes on here. The more you disengage, the more you have to disengage to get control. You never get control. And your thinking gets into a spiral the, so, the sort of the seeds of depression get sown. We often talk about depression being anger. Think about this. Anger turned inward. In this phase of aloneness, let me go back to what I said earlier. What's the one thing you're not made for? It's not good that man be what? Alone. I don't think I've ever seen more aloneness than I'm seeing right now in our culture, in our people, even in our churches. People feel very alone. You know anyone who's alone, you all? Hell loves to get you alone. Because if he can get you alone, you're easy prey. People don't care about you. Nobody's going to show up for you. God doesn't care about you. Can you see how aloneness can start consuming you? Peter said he walks around, the evil one walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may what? Devour. Hell loves to get you alone. Know anybody who's alone? By the way, you can be funny. He's funny, but he's very alone. You can be the most gregarious, outgoing person in all the world and be very alone. If you can't resolve your pain or your issues at this place, watch what continues to happen. It begins to spiral even further out of control. It'll lead to another double-A response. You can begin to feel alienated and or, and I'm going to use the word arrogant carefully. It isn't that you're arrogant. It's that you begin to come across that way to other people. Let's go back to the alienation piece. You start feeling like um, people are against you. You ever been around somebody who's paranoid, you all? Hey, stop being so paranoid. Paranoid people are like what? Dude, you've been sitting down there all morning talking. I know you don't like what I'm talking about. You see that? I mean, what am I going to do with you? Huh? Yeah, I'm talking to you. And he's sitting down there saying, who are you? I don't care about you. I'm not even talking about you. But paranoid people begin to attribute motives, or they begin to see things that aren't there, you all. 
Their life's getting further out of control. And they've got to give some type of reason for what's going on. Stop talking over there in the corner. I know you guys were at the coffee bar today, and you guys are over there whispering. I know what you were talking about. You know what, Tim? We weren't talking about you. Oh, yes, you were. Oh, no, we weren't. We don't even care about you, dude. (laughs) And it's like, man, you guys seeing this? And what's interesting, too, is if depression is starting to take place in a person's life, and there are many influences that bring on depression. Yes, even in relationships, when you get into a spin in your relationships, it can sow the seeds of depression. It can turn inward on you and begin to consume you. You feel like a wet blanket over you. But in this depression piece, what happens is, you like being around someone who's depressed? Anybody in here want to volunteer? You love being around depressed people. Huh? Depressed people, what do they talk about? Or who do they talk about? Everybody say themselves. Themselves. So every time you're in their presence, they're going to tell you about their life, right? I know someone right now in my life, that's all they do. It's when my phone rings, I think, I'm not answering that. I am not doing this right now. They'll come in that door, you'll see them, and by the way, they're just, they're wanting to talk to you. They want someone to understand what's going on in their life because they don't think anyone gets it, and they're trying to get someone to see it, but the very nature of what's going on in their life drives you crazy, and so when they come in that door, you say, hey, Pastor Greg's over here. I've got to go see Pastor Greg. I'm going to run over here, and you exit that way. What did you just reinforce in their life, by the way? The alienation piece. Because they don't think anyone understands and everybody, quotes, not interested. And the truth is, you all, they're coming across very what? Arrogant or consumed about themselves, but it's not really that. They're overwhelmed and lost in this pain that's in their life. They're just trying to get through it, but they're coming across all wrong. Do you know anybody who's maybe feeling like the whole world's against them? It's easy to go there. you know anybody who's coming across wrong? At this particular place, too, everybody's screaming, help me, help me, help me. But they reject every attempt to be helped, and they complain that nobody what? Nobody will help them. It's like in marriage. You have somebody screaming, love me, love me, love me, but they reject every attempt at being loved, and then they complain that nobody what? Nobody loves them. You guys seeing this? Everybody's screaming, but nobody can hear. If you can't resolve it at this particular level, watch what happens. It goes deeper. It leads to a place, what we call in counseling or psychology, the adulteries of the heart. In the Bible, it's called idolatry. Uh, The best way to understand this would be to... uh, Draw an upside-down triangle just for a moment in your mind's eye. Uh, an upside-down triangle. Take um, your relationship, say, between you and God or between you and the person you love. Just think about this for a moment. If that relationship is not the way it's supposed to be, if it isn't making sense, if it's conflictual, if it's confusing, if that relationship's confusing, what you'll do, because you're made for a relationship, you'll pull up into your life anything to anesthetize the pain, to calm or soothe yourself. 
It's what we turn to instead of. So instead of looking to God or pressing in closer to God, I turn to something else to fill that hole or emptiness in my heart. It took me a while to understand that even in my own life, there are things that I turn to to give myself meaning and value. What do people often do, Tim? What do they turn to? When, when their marriage isn't working right, their relationship with parents isn't right, uh, co-workers, or their relationship with God, they can pull into their life, they become a classic workaholic. At least, at least they appreciate me at work. In ministry, ministry leaders turn in 70, 80 plus hours a week, and the spouse will say, you're married to the ministry. Some of us, we turn to hobbies, things that we love. And we play um, every weekend with the local softball team. We get lost. We won't talk about hunting and fishing, right, guys? We'll leave that one out. We'll leave out shopping and those kind of things. But now it's what we begin to turn to. Some people begin to turn to pornography. Do you guys know that the greatest problem in the church now they're saying in the Christian home today, Josh McDowell, McDowell just had a big conference in Greensboro, uh, North Carolina last weekend. They're saying internet pornography has become the greatest challenge of our day. It's the number one problem in Christian homes today. The number one consumer of internet pornography, you all, boys ages 12 to 17. There's not a man who can handle what's on the internet let alone a 12 to 17-year-old boy. They're now saying this, that there is a tsunami effect of relationship deprivation coming that we have yet to even begin to see and what it's going to do to our relationships, our marriages in the future. We have 15-year-old girls trying to figure out how to deal with a boy who's consumed with Internet pornography and date him. Think about what it's like to be married to someone who's lost in that. Um, James 1.8 says, for a double-minded man. I, I like to interpret it this way. John Ortberg said, that's a divided heart. When you have a divided heart, you can get lost. No man can serve two masters. You can't have two honeys. That's what my son, Zach, says. And I get you in trouble, Dad. Um, again, the issue here. In this adultery is the heart piece, this is where we begin abusing a relationship or something or our behavior in our life to fill the emptiness inside of us. If we can't resolve it, you all, it leads to then a full-blown addiction in our life. And our addiction is where we no longer are dabbling. We become consumed by or dependent on what we've given our heart to. It's easy to go there. You know why? Because we're made for relationships. That's why. If our relationship with God isn't working, our relationship with our closest people, the people we love in our life, it's not working, something's got to fill that void. That's why God says, little children, well, 1 John 5, 21 says it this way, little children, keep yourself from idols. Be careful what you give your heart to, because why? It will consume you. And God the scripture says is a jealous God. He hates it when we give ourselves to something else. 
Why is it so hard to let go? Why can't people stop drinking? Why can't they turn off the computer? Why can't they get a hold of the issues of their life? I used to be hard in my early days with people who were caught up in addiction, and it's changed so much now because I know the power of that vice in our life now. It's a surrogate. It's created a false intimacy. It's a false lover. It's meeting needs in our life that only God and closest, those closest to us can meet. And it's hard to let it go. Do you know someone who's caught up in addiction, you all? John Eldridge and Brent Curtis in their book, Sacred Romance, said this. They believed that an addiction, I'm not an addict, I'm not an addict, I've got control, no. An addiction represents the most powerful psychic enemy we have in our relationship with God. It keeps you from the presence and power of God in your life. By the way, an addiction will also destroy any healthy, loving relationship that's out there. It becomes a new lover. And it's hard to let it go. It's seemingly the only thing that meets the needs that are in our lives, the holes in our life. Here's what's scary. What's scary is you can get to a place where at that particular point, hell begins to rejoice. And he's Awesome, Tim, you're the man, dude. You got it going on. It's great stuff. Party, live your life. Focus on the stuff. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. At least, at least I have people who appreciate me. Yay. At least they get it. They're friends to me no matter what. Yay. And the scary thing is, he begins to whisper lies like this. You know what? You... Oh, you may come off cool and uh, look all godly to other people, but Tim, I know your heart. You look like me. You act like me. You smell like me. God doesn't love you. The truth is you're done. You're a joke. That Christianity piece that you play, it's a disaster in your life, and you know it. And people get into a spin, and they wrestle, and they say, God, help me. Virtually every man I've ever met doesn't believe that God loves him. And if they can't get it straight, some people will get to a place where they begin to think, yes, even Christian people can get to a place where they'll begin to believe that the world and life would be better off without them. And hell what? Take you out of the play. Well, that's been a great morning so far, right? <laughs> now that we're all depressed and ready to kill ourselves or something. <laughs> Let me say this. God loves to use powerlessness when we get to the end of ourselves to send us fleeing back to him. The issue is, will you hear or see him in those moments? What's the way to come out of all this pain, you all? I believe it begins with, how do you recover your heart, Tim? How do you, how do you break free? How do you turn your life around? It starts, I believe, with the affection of God. Again, I believe every man, pretty much, virtually every man I've ever met, doesn't really believe that God loves him. Deep down inside. He can, he can go to church. He can sing. He can lead. He can, go on, he can go on the hike. He can do it all. 
But when he's alone, he, he wrestles with God. The greatest challenge you have in your life is to understand what it means to be loved by God. God's a pursuer God. He'll work in your rebellion. He'll work in your pain. He has to work in the beauty of your life constantly to win your heart. That's what the message of the Bible is all about. I want to celebrate the reach and love of God toward all of us. He loves you like he loves me with everything he has, and he's beckoning you to come to himself. I had a great dad who loved me, you all, and because he did, I often wanted to live right for my dad. You guys get this? When you understand someone loves you, that he's there for you, you begin then to look at yourself. You begin to assess where you're at on this healing path. Psalm 139 says it this way, and when you get in the presence of the loving God, it's, God, search me and know me, try me, see me, See if there any be any wicked way in me. Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. And as you begin to assess your mess and the things you need to put off and put on, you can then become more aware of who he is. When Isaiah got in the presence of God, when he saw him high and lifted up in Isaiah 6, he said, woe is me. God, I need you. When are you going to let God reveal himself to you for a moment in, his, in all of his majesty and greatness? And when you see that, well, what it'll do is it'll call you into a relationship with him. I call it an attachment bond, a unique bond where you understand his presence and power. It's like Jesus in John 15, 1 and 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, and without me you can do what? Nothing. And when you get that, it produces godly action in your life. Paul said, the things you have heard, both learned, and seen in me, do them, and the peace of God will be with you. As you understand and move into that relationship dynamic with God, there's a freedom that comes over you. And you understand then the importance of community like this. That a two, a two are better than one, for there's a greater reward for their labor. A threefold cord is not easily broken. And you go the antithesis of what? Aloneness into relationship more. And you appreciate and value that. And as you are in biblical community, what it does is it begins to make you alive again and you're fresh, and you're powerful, and the accountability just washes over you, and you're, you're developing or sculpting new life and freedom in your life. You got that? And you can get to a place where you see the power and presence of God in a special way. I love Revelation chapter 12. You know that verse where it says, and they overcame them by the what? The blood of the Lamb, that's the love of God, and the power of their testimony a life well lived. Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has come to set us, what? Free. Kiss the sun and you'll be free indeed. You know anybody who's going through a hard time in life, you all? Can you see how easy it is to get lost and to spin? You know what God does? He shows up in what I call our defining moments. Somewhere it may be a radio program, could be a phone call from a friend who lets God work through them. Maybe it's a text. You never know what it is. But God taps and he says, you know what, I'm here. He says, come home. Don't, don't wander anymore. Don't be lost. Come home. It's for freedom, Paul said that Christ has come to set us free. You can move beyond all the brokenness and the barrenness and live free. That's his message. Wouldn't it be amazing 
And I think the world's standing on tiptoes awaiting the emerging of a spirit-led, a spirit-intoxicated people, people who know his presence and power. And God, I pray that over each person in this room today. God, stir in their heart. Put discontent inside them. Lord, let them cry out for a new life, a new way, for freedom. And God, pour that into their soul. Bring into the life everything necessary to set their feet on a new path. Redeem marriages, God. Bring back, bring back prodigals. God, release the shackles of bondage. Help us to taste and see that you're good. In Jesus' name.